What you're about to listen to may include some potty talk. Then again, it may not. I hope it does, though. It's Tuesday, November 12th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Go slow, quid pro quo. Dems term quid pro quo a no-no. What's that, Mike? No, it's not a stroke thrusting monosyllabity upon me. Rather, the idea, as expressed by Craig Melvin on MSNBC today and agreed to by his guest, former federal prosecutor Joyce Vance, the idea that quid pro quo isn't the best term to describe the president's actions. Uh, we've heard uh, that Democrats are going to perhaps stop using the phrase quid pro quo and instead start using words like bribery, like extortion. How much of a difference does, does, does that make in, uh, in, in weaving this narrative that you just mentioned? Quid pro quo, that's, it's a lawyer's term. Every time the people at home hear someone say quid pro quo, they should just think bribe because that's exactly what it is. To which I say no. Because, yo, quid pro quo is quite a blow. First of all, quid pro quo was the president's petard of choice. And now he's being hoisted by it. Hoisting someone by another's petard, not only is it not as effective, it's not even an idiom. By changing the conversation to, was it bribery? Was it extortion? I think that kind of waters it down because actually it wasn't bribery. It was only attempted bribery and attempted extortion. But it's very clean to say that, yes, it was a quid pro quo. The ask was a this for a that. And of course, you have Mulvaney and others on tape saying, well, yeah, 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 it was a quid pro quo. That's great. Why would you want to change the terrain to let them out from under that admission? Sure, bribery, that's tempting to use if you could prove that. Because if you could prove bribery, well, then you can't argue, oh, it's not impeachable. I mean, Article 2, Section 4, the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. So if you prove bribery, all the ambiguity about what high crimes and misdemeanors means or doesn't mean out the window. But it's harder. It's harder to prove bribery. Perhaps it's extremely simple to prove the thing that's right there that Mulvaney himself admits to. But, you know, if you're deciding what you're talking about based on the latest Republican talking points, which are, as we showed and played on this show, which are, well, it might have been a quid pro quo and it might have been wrong, but it's not impeachable. Look, you can't play that game. There'll be a new ridiculous defensive talking point next week. Just stick with what you got on the quid pro quo. It is clearly the way to go. On the show today, quite a big show. Just so you know, now that I'm done talking about quid pro quo, I spiel about the scandal-defying leaders like Ralph Northam and Justin Trudeau and what lessons to take from them. Is the lesson about blackface? Is it about the voters being forgiving? Or is it about shame for shame? But first, Fintan O'Toole is just and has long been one of my favorite authors on things Irish and Irish adjacent, also on theater. He writes for the Financial Times and the Irish Times. He is out with a book analyzing Brexit. I will tell you the name of his book if you wish to buy it. It is called The Politics of Pain, Post-War England and the Rise of Nationalism. But I much prefer the English title because it really gets at the nub of what went wrong Heroic Failure, Brexit, and the Politics of Pain. Heroic Failure. Fintan O'Toole, quite a success story. Up next. So if you believe, as I do, as past just guest Yuval Harari 
argues that a nation is just an idea. Let us consider the nation of Great Britain, the perhaps cracking up nation of Great Britain and Brexit. What did they do and why did they do it? The psychology of the country is put in the forefront of Fintan O'Toole's new book, The Politics of Pain, Post-War England and the Rise of Nationalism. It really takes an Irishman to diagnose the British. Hello, Fintan. Thanks for joining me. Hi, (laughs) Mike. The book starts where an early chapter is about your first visit from Dublin to England. You were 12? Yeah, you know, I wanted to start with, I suppose, a a sort of warm, reminiscent passage about my own relationship to England, really, you know, and uh, growing up in Ireland. You know, listeners may know there's a little bit of history between Ireland and England, you know. uh, (laughs) Not always uh, always uh, kind. uh, Not always kind. And, you know, I grew up, I suppose, also, you know, to be honest about the fact that there was a kind of very religious dimension to this, you know, the Ireland I grew up in was Catholic Ireland, and it was very, very Catholic. And I'm talking about the 1960s. So we had these very prejudiced ideas about England, you know, as a sort of pagan Protestant place, as well as all the 800 years of oppression. So there was plenty to be prejudiced about. And so I just tried to describe kind of going there when I was a kid with my father. And of course, the reason I was there was to visit his family, you know, who were our family, because that's huge numbers of people, of course, emigrated from Ireland to England, particularly that kind of post-war generation. And I wouldn't blame them. They had better lives in England. There was an England that was open and tolerant and the welfare state, the the fact that ordinary poor people could go from Ireland and could get an education, could have access to excellent health care, you know, their kids could hope for a better life. I'm a huge admirer, actually, of what the British did after the Second World War in trying to build a better society for themselves. And some of those institutions they created, like the National Health Service, are among the most civilized that have ever been created on the planet. Right. So maybe peoples of the world will look at England and find something to admire at different parts of their history. But of course, an Irishman and a Republican and Irish national is not going to look at, say, World War One and even World War Two. I don't know. Uh, you had relatives who fought in World War Two, and that was less of a conscription. In America, we, of course, got our independence from England and yet could still find points in the history to say, this is what I admire England for. The point is that England has such a long history that they know and will tell you about, but there are different portions of their history that any person of any open-minded and informed orientation can point to and say that that is the England that is the England that I admire. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge amount in the culture to admire. And at the same time, we're looking at this culture really in a kind of nervous breakdown, you know. And so what you have to try to explain to yourself as much as to them really is, you know, how, how does this happen? I mean, how, how does a culture which has these great democratic traditions, these great egalitarian traditions, these great cultural and artistic traditions that given the world so much, you know, how do they get themselves into a self-imposed state. You know, in a way, they're going through now what countries tend to go through when they're attacked by a foreign enemy or, you know, thrown into chaos through external forces. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, you're watching a society which is going to be willing itself into this kind of condition with a kind of appalled fascination. <laughs> I, I set out to try to explore a bit and just see what's going on underneath this. And you do then have to engage a little bit with the post-war history, I think. Do you think Britain would be so susceptible to this moment if they weren't an empire and if in their national consciousness the idea of empire weren't important still? 
Yeah, you know, it's almost cliche, isn't it, to talk about imperial nostalgia and all that kind of stuff. But there is a reality to it. The historic specificity of this place is that from a relatively small island, it ran the biggest empire the world has seen. And it ran it for a very long time. And it ruthlessly exploited a quarter of the world's population. That's not a normal experience, right? And it has to leave a legacy. What I try to argue, actually, that the legacy it leaves is a sort of a psychological legacy, Mm -hmm. a legacy of not really being comfortable with being ordinary. You know, this idea that Britain is an ordinary, prosperous, reasonably privileged Western European country is somehow not good enough. And I think a part of this goes back to the psychology of empire, right? So Empire is binary. You you only have two states. You're you're either the dominant power or you are being dominated. There's nothing in between, really. And I think the zombie stage of imperialism is you still have that attitude, but it doesn't fit with your circumstances. You know, uh, Britain's circumstances are in between. You know, it's in a European Union, which is a very boring, consensual, dull, slow-moving kind of institution in which nobody gets to dominate. This whole thing was constructed to stop Europe going into the abyss again as it went twice in the 20th century because of German power. How do you contain that? How do you make sure that you have a continent where nobody can throw their weight around? That's what it's constructed to do. But if you're English in particular, and you've got this mindset, which is, hold on a minute, are we dominating this? Well, no, we're not. Therefore, the only other possibility is that it is dominating us. And this is where you get this strange narrative of what I call imaginary oppression. (laughs) You You start willing yourself into this idea that we have been humiliated and we're submissive just by being a normal country. And maybe this is a reason why the Brexit vote, the old, very much voted to leave, whereas the young voted to remain. And most of the analysis has to do with... An openness to new experience and one's conception of, you know, one's place in the world and what an old England meant. But, you know, now that you say it, many of the people or a proportionate number of the voters who voted to leave to Brexit either remembered the days of English dominance or grew up in a home where, you know, a father or mother survived the Blitz. And it was not a story that one could learn or choose not to learn in a history book. It was more of a lived experience. And if you have that lived experience as an empire, you're more likely to vote to leave. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Mike. The demography, you know, is destiny with this. You know, there's absolutely no doubt about the fact that you have overwhelming numbers of younger people not just voting to remain in the European Union, but being really angry about being taken out of it. I mean, really feeling this is an attack on my identity. You know, I feel European. And on the other side, you have you have this older generation. But there's a slight kind of twist to this, really, which is actually the very old. So the over 50s, by and large, vote to leave. But the very old, actually, the people who are in their 80s <laughs> vote to stay. Because the funny thing is the people who really, really remember it, you know, who actually were there, they are susceptible to an argument that says, look, this is horrible. You know, this Europe is capable of exploding. And we get the thing about building a peace project, you know, about building something yeah. that sort of stops it happening again. And, and it's, it's very interesting if you look back because 
the Brits actually had a vote on whether to stay in the European Union or not, or common market, as it was then called in 1975, when really people very much did remember it. And actually, the government at the time, the Labour government, which called a referendum, used the war card in a positive way, actually. So it was capable of being used to say, you know, we don't want to experience this again. It's, I think, what sets in uh, with distance then, the, the next generation starts to mythologize all this sort of stuff and right. to take out from it the reality that this was about dying and it was about disaster and it was about this catastrophic set of events for the Brits and for the Germans and for everybody, for humanity. So as much as as much as Brexit and the, and the story of Brexit reminds me of, well, the rise of populism around Europe and also what happened here with Trump, there are some things that aren't the same. And one is this. There are some Trump policies that do absolutely help some people. I mean, the very wealthy were quite benefited by his tax cuts. And there are some, he did get judges appointed who, if you're very much against abortion, that will probably further that political slash moral aim. And you can even argue that if you are an absolute hardliner on immigration, there are some benefits. Trump's giving you some of what you want, even though he's being smacked down by the courts. It doesn't, none of that seems true with Brexit. If it's all based, if it's all premised on not just mostly a warping and misrepresentation of an ideal, but entirely on that, is there actually anyone tangibly benefiting who, you know, doesn't have a thatch of crazy blonde hair? (laughs) (laughs) Well, primarily people with touches of crazy blood hair, absolutely. I mean, there are people who benefit. I mean, chaos capitalism, you know, does produce opportunities. So the big funders of Brexit, you know, this is just a matter of fact, are, are hedge fund billionaires. Hedge funds can kind of completely thrive in circumstances of chaos, you know, because yeah. you can make bets and you can do very well. That's true. But the banking sector but, as a whole very much yeah, wanted to remain. Uh, uh, no, that's absolutely true. It's like it's it's actually fascinating because, the you know, for the old Marxists thinking, oh, you know, the bankers will never allow this to happen. Well, you know, it turns out they don't have the power to stop it. And old industry hasn't been able. I mean, almost the entire sort of industrial sector, you know, is saying, look, don't do this. It's completely crazy. So, but there are these kind of sectors of a sort of anarchic, ultra-libertarian you know, financial sector, which benefits, but that's very, very limited. And I I think your analogy is brilliant, you know, in saying that, okay, Trump can deliver some things and they're tangible things that, you know, you can argue about whether they're good things or bad things, but you you can kind of see them there. Mm -hmm. The problem with Brexit as a political project is that it actually, all of its supposed benefits are based on a fallacy, right? Which is, so the whole idea is we have been enslaved in the European Union We've been prevented from doing all these fabulous trade deals around the world, which is a complete lie. They've got all the trade deals they get, they get them through the European Union. They've got 75 actually very good trade deals with lots of different countries, right? But once we leave, we can then do these fantastic trade deals with everybody. And the reality, of course, this is where Trump comes in, right, which is the big trade deal they're looking for is with the United States, you know, and Trump's saying, we've got to get the greatest trade deal ever done in the history of humanity, you know. And what's the first thing they look for? Well, they say, well, actually, you know what, you pay. So just to take a concrete example, right, so the National Health Service in Britain is a really fantastic thing, right? Everybody can just go to the doctor. If you're sick, you get treated, you know, there's problems with it, underfunded in the last 10 years. But in principle, that's how it works. And you get your drugs paid for, you know, it's part of the system, right? So people can afford their medication. 
who hates this most? Well, the big pharmaceutical companies really, really hate it because there's a single bargaining power, right? So the entire British drug market, you deal with the National Health Service and they're very good at saying, no, we're not paying that you know, vastly inflated price for this drug. We want it at this price. And, th- and they generally get it at a price that's maybe a third of what people listening to this in America are paying for the same drugs produced by American pharmaceutical companies, right? So the American pharmaceutical companies really want to break this whole system, right? So, so the first thing on the agenda in a trade deal is they're going to say, well, well, uh, actually, we want to charge American prices for American drugs, <laughs> yeah. which breaks the National Health Service. Now, this is why the political project right, is deeply troubled. It can't go anywhere because whatever you think about it, those Brexit voters did not vote to lose their National Health Service. On the contrary, the most effective slogan was they were being told that when we when we get rid of the European Union, we'll have a lot more money to put into the National Health Service. You know, so yeah, there was that truck driving around with unfactual claims about how many millions a day were three hundred and fifty million a week. Where yeah, you know, putting it. yeah, it was a lie, but it was an effective lie, right? So it's what people want to hear. So the people who voted for it have certain expectations, which this project simply cannot meet. And if anything, it's going to to be the reverse. It's actually going to damage their interests in in very tangible ways. Then how does Boris Johnson possibly and the Tories possibly win this election, which it's not not a done deal, but he is in the lead, it seems. He's in the lead in the polls. We've got to remember, most people who vote for Brexit are conservative voters, right? So, you know, that's the bulk of them. But there's about two million people who are traditional Labour voters who voted for Brexit. And what he's banking on is if it's Brexit, 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 just keep saying Brexit. They're very angry at the Labour Party because it's seen as being weak on Brexit. It's not giving them what they want. It doesn't want to leave right now. That they will flock to Boris Johnson. And his slogan is, get Brexit done. If you think about the slogan, right, it's mind-blowing, right? Because this is the guy who has inflicted this more than anybody else on his country. You know, he was, the, he was the real leader of this whole thing. And now what he's saying is, I can make this horrible thing stop. <laughs> you know, it's, I've created such a mess, but I'm the only person who can make it stop. It's like what a torturer says to his victims. You know, I, I can stop the pain now if you just vote for me. Yes, it's exactly like Trump saying, I could end babies in cages. Wait a minute, who yeah. started him? Who started Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Know, Obama, yeah. Yeah. Now, my view of this is that I'm not sure it's going to work, right? I think there's two reasons it may not work. One is that, of course, he hasn't got Brexit. It's bizarre in a way. I mean, he got a deal with the European Union, a withdrawal agreement. He seems to have a majority in Parliament for it. And then he pulled it and went for an election, which tells you, of course, that he's not actually interested in Brexit. He's interested in power. That's, you know, he's astonishingly cynical, this guy, right? He was asked a few years ago, did he have any convictions? And he said, yeah, I've got one for speeding. You know, and that's uh, one of, a moment of truth. Yeah. A moment of truth, you know. Uh, so he's not really interested in Brexit or the European Union or any of that sort of stuff. He's interested in power. So he sees this as a vehicle that can sort of drive him into this place. But he hasn't delivered. Remember, he said he would die in a ditch rather than ask for an extension to the Brexit process beyond October 31st. He was going to do it, do or die. That was his whole pitch. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit weak now to be going to the public and saying, oh, just give me another vote and I'll uh, next time I'll get us out. You know, I'm not sure that that's going to work entirely. The other thing that's a big factor is he's gambling on... He knows he's going to lose a lot of votes in Scotland, but the Tories are going to lose all their Scottish seats, I think. Mm-hmm. They'll lose seats in London, which is very Remain, very much against Brexit. And the, the gamble is, but we can win all these Labour Party, traditionally left-wing working class seats in the Midlands and the North. Now, maybe I'm delusional, but if you talk to people in those areas, I think they think 
Johnson's party is actually officially called Tory scum because that's <laughs> that's what they call it. You know, they don't they talk about the Tory scum. You know, there's a deep visceral generational hatred of the Conservative Party. Now, maybe maybe Brexit does. You know, and it, this is the Trump analogy is is interesting here. You know, maybe this sort of populist appeal is enough to get people that we hate the other crowd and we hate European Union and all that sort of stuff enough to force that kind of generational shift in voting patterns. But I, I'm not entirely sure that's the case. If I had to bet money now, I, I would say they're going to be right back where they started. You're going to get another hung parliament. Yeah. And I still think this could go back to a second public vote. The Politics of Pain, Post-War England and the Rise of Nationalism is the name of the book. Fintan O'Toole is its author. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you for joining me. It's been lovely, Mike. Thank you. And now the spiel. New York Times, front page headline. After outcry over blackface, Virginia's governor rebounds. The reporting is about a twin set of facts. Fact one, in February, pictures surfaced showing Virginia Governor Ralph Northam wearing blackface in college. That Michael Jackson impression or the promise thereof, you remember that, right? Fact two, the Democrats won big a week ago in Virginia. They now control both houses of the legislature, putting Northam in a position to make huge changes. Now, despite those facts, the headline after outcry over blackface, Virginia's governor rebounds, is not entirely factual. So first of all, let's talk about rebounds. If you look at Northam's approval ratings, he did go from America's third or fourth most popular governor before the scandal to an approval rating of 43%, a disapproval of 44% in the days immediately after the scandal broke. Since then, his approval is up a whopping 4%, though his disapproval has dipped. He's pretty much stayed on the sidelines for most of the campaign. But now let's look at the outcry portion of the headline. Sure, there was a lot of negative attention and many prominent Democrats were calling for him to step down. But the state never was. Quinnipiac polled in the days right after the story broke, right after that press conference where the governor, I think, offered to moonwalk. I think that happened. But I think, I don't mean, it is only my recollection. I'm pretty sure it happened, though there are some who say that that wasn't actually his offer. But it seemed like his offer. Anyway, at that time, 42% of voters in Virginia said Northam should resign. 48% said he should not resign. And if you look at black voters, as Quinnipiac did, 56% of black voters said Northam should not quit. First of all, we should note that the black voters were essentially right if they were being strategic, right? Their issues, the issues important to most black voters, most Democratic voters, most black voters were advanced. The trifecta of Virginia government being controlled by the Democrats certainly helps their interests and avoiding upheaval in the governor position helped them get there. But it also got me to wondering about the nature of scandal and the nature of outcry. We have some other data points sadly, on leaders who used blackface or brownface or yellowface. One was Kay Ivey, the governor of Alabama, also wore blackface, apologized for it, and that didn't hurt her approval because mm, Alabama, although her approval has really fallen, and that more or less coincides with her signing of an extremely restrictive abortion bill, uh, which happened a little after the blackface incident came to light. So maybe we were a wee bit reductive when we said, because Alabama. Maybe Alabama can surprise us on some issues. And then there is, of course, Justin Trudeau, Canadian prime minister, who infamously wore blackface or brownface and yellowface and some other face other than his own face. He did 
save face, or at least save face enough to win re-election by a lesser margin than his initial electoral triumph. Voters in exit polls and at the literal polls said they weren't thrilled by what their prime minister had done in the past. They weren't thrilled with Trudeau in general, but they clearly didn't find it a firing offense. Plus, he did do a series of interviews, including this one, where he addressed the nearly two decades old incident or incidents extensively. This was some of the questions he fielded from Canada's global news network. I'd like to start with something that you'd probably rather forget. What followed was a proper grilling. This just a selection of some of the queries put to Justin Trudeau. It is the biggest hit your campaign has taken. It was you doing that, putting mm-hmm. that makeup on. You know, your critics say it makes you a hypocrite. You know, people have been fired for doing this. You've asked for forgiveness, but why should Canadians give you a pass? When did you stop thinking that darkening your skin was acceptable? So 2001 was the last time. Have you talked to your mother about this? You're disappointed in yourself? You know, lots of people are making fun of you. Do you think you've embarrassed Canada on the world stage? Trudeau answered with a variation of the same thing every time. It was wrong. I know that now. And I apologize. I don't know if the voters accepted the apology, but they did vote him back in. So what is going on here? One interpretation is that the media is just drawn to scandal. And also that they genuinely find the behavior more scandalous than the public at large does. Not that the public doesn't care, just that the public expresses its care in a different way than the media. The media one day can spend all their energies on a story. Months later, the public can either vote for that candidate or not. I think it is true that the media are both drawn to scandal and also think that wearing blackface is more of a scandal than the public generally does. It is quite easy for national media, or in the case of Canada, international media, to descend on a locale and to declare the leader to have transgressed, and then just to focus on that one data point. But the people who live in that state or country, they have to take into account much more than just the one act. I mean, CNN will never do a segment, are Virginia's schools gradually improving? Did Virginia properly address its highway flooding situation? The answer is yes, by the way, to both things. And that affects the lives of Virginia voters, but not necessarily the interests of those outside Virginia who just want the governor to quit over wearing blackface. So, I do think the importance of a 20 or 30 year old bad, insensitive, wrong act, it's more salient to those clamoring from the outside to those living inside. But I also think we are changing how we deal with scandal in general. There was a time when scandal would lead invariably to resignation. Bill Clinton changed that. And before him, guys like James Traficant and Marion Barry also changed that a little bit. But now we're living in the age of apology. And this age dovetails with the age of the unaccepted apology. And politicians are seeing another way of doing things. More and more politicians are taking their cues from Trump, who never apologizes, and thus far, who stays in office. And politicians wonder, maybe I can outlast this thing. Beto O'Rourke tried the normal, I'm going to apologize for everything. Ploy, it didn't work. He was mocked. And now he's out. Plus, attention spans aren't what they used to be. Plus, plus, there is a great umbrage taking at quasi-scandal. So maybe a politician is saying to himself or herself, but often himself, 
Maybe my scandal really was only a quasi-scandal. Maybe I could convince voters that my scandal was a quasi-scandal. Maybe I can convince myself. Maybe if I don't really convince them, but do a good enough job for, I don't know, day, day and a half, it'll all go away. Then there's this. A morning consult slash Politico poll found that 39% of GOP voters said they would vote for a Republican who wore blackface, compared with 15% of Democrats who said the same thing of a Democratic politician. Okay, that makes sense. Republicans are less likely to find wearing blackface inherently offensive. Plus, there are almost no black Republicans, so they don't worry about offending someone in their coalition. Let's also add that while 15% of Democratic voters said they wouldn't vote for the candidate who wore blackface in Virginia, an actual case where it happened, Ralph Northam enjoys 70% job approval rating among Democrats. Now let's move to sexual misconduct which Virginia's lieutenant governor was accused of, by the way, and he didn't resign and he still holds office. So in the same morning consult Politico poll, 31% of GOP voters said they would back a GOP candidate accused of sexual misconduct. Only 10% of Democratic voters said so. This also strikes me as accurate. Republicans have advanced the narrative that they're always being unfairly accused of sexual misconduct. Or sometimes the narrative is more along the lines of, oh, what other people are being sensitive about and calling sexual misconduct shouldn't even be called sexual misconduct. Plus, take into account among Republicans the lack of a signaling imperative, right? Democrats gain social status by standing against sexual misconduct and defining it broadly. Republicans gain status by defying Democrat championed norms. Now, that poll, that's a poll of voters. But if you look at what actual politicians have done, it somewhat comports with that poll. Like I said, Justin Fairfax, Virginia's Democrat lieutenant governor, he's refused to resign. He's still there. But of course, Katie Hill, Democrat representative, former Democratic representative, she did resign over alleged and confirmed sexual misconduct that was never even said to be criminal. As Hill's defenders are quick to mention, there is a list of Republican representatives, all male, who didn't resign. And in fact, Duncan Hunter, who the government is trying for, among other things, funneling funds to his mistress, he refuses to step down. Which brings me to the last large component in all of this. Shame. What makes politicians leave office is still shame. I think the politicians who wore blackface were embarrassed, or at least embarrassed to have been caught, maybe embarrassed to have done it. And I do take them at their word that they're apologetic, but I don't think they were ashamed in the sense that they remember themselves as younger people and they remember the different time we were living in. Clearly it was a different time because you could do that and put that in a yearbook, right? And that allows them to sidestep a true feeling of shame currently in the moment. Whereas I think politicians who go through a sex scandal that embarrasses their kids or their spouses, they often do feel genuine shame and they they might step down. I think that Duncan Hunter doesn't have the capacity to feel shame. And I don't pretend to know if Katie Hill does or doesn't feel shame or not the capacity, but actually feels actual shame over this incident or alleged series of incidents. But it's plausible she does more so then a Republican like Duncan Hunter or Blake Farenthold, who paid fines for harassing staffers more than they would feel shame. They tell us that shame isn't that useful an emotion. Have you heard this? I have heard this argument that shame is rudimentary and it's crude. And at best, it's just a, a crude limiter of some of our more egregious transgressions to which I say, well, at least it's a crude limiter of some of our more egregious transgressions. 
I guess the best thing is for the public to have a certain calibration of that, which is shameful, and for that to align with the specific public official's sense of shame. Otherwise, what will happen is the officials who remain in office after a bona fide scandal, those will only be the worst officials, those without the capacity to feel shame. Wait, that is already going on at the highest level, isn't it? And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Daniel Schrader, who did not talk to his mother about that. Christina DeJosa also produces the gist. She prefers to move from a conversation about quid pro quo to a conversation of, is the president's brain literally made of oatmeal? The gist. I never said Canadians should give me a pass. But if I were to pick one to do so, it'd be Wayne Gretzky, greatest setup man in the business. He shoots, he scores. Oomperdepperdepperu, and thanks for listening. 